Content warning. I will be talking about a school bombing. This includes the death of children. Listener discretion is advised. So the world is, well, it's not great. And I have a true crime blog. Fantastic. With all that's going on in the world currently, it won't surprise me if you skip this one. Feel free. Come back to it later or never. Uh, Because we're going to be talking about some difficult things. The Bath School disaster occurred in 1927. The Bath Consolidated School Building was bombed by Andrew Kehoe, killing 38 students and 6 adults. It actually remains as the largest school massacre in the country, though plenty of competition has arisen in the past few decades. Sorry if you can hear my dog. She will be the guest star. But let's start from the beginning. Andrew Kehoe was born in Tecumseh, Michigan in 1872, the only boy among seven siblings. He was the long-sought-after heir to the family, and because of this, not only was he treated with reverence by his parents, but with a strict word and hand by his father. After all, Andrew was going to carry on the family name. He must grow up to be exactly what his father intended him to be. So, of course, this probably fucked with little Andrew's brain. He was the golden boy, and this most likely contributed to his overinflated sense of self-importance. But he was also subject to a very demanding father. He spent a lot of his youth among adults, attending many monthly dinners and parties that his parents and their friends held called Farmer's Clubs. A host of topics were talked about at these dinners, everything from the weather to economic philosophy, along with poetry readings and plays performed, mostly by the women who ran the group. Andrew paid attention to his father's speeches and conversations, and it's probably here where he developed his conservative view of public spending, and that's putting it nicely. His mother died when he was 18 of something called the, quote, disease of the nervous system. We don't know exactly how Kehoe felt about his mother or how her death affected him, but we do know that when his father married a woman 25 years his junior, Kehoe left the family farm. He went to Michigan State Agricultural College in East Lansing, as it was called then, and studied electrical engineering. Apparently, he had a talent for mechanics and a particular interest in electricity. You'll want to keep that in mind for later. And unlike these days, when no one can get a job in their field, Kehoe got one as an electrician in St. Louis. Some of the details are sketchy, but what we do know is that sometime during his stay in St. Louis, Kehoe suffered a huge head injury. He was in bed for several months, and honestly, from the description, I'm kind of surprised he survived. The main point given was that he he was, quote, semi-conscious for nearly two months. So that's kind of horrific. Oh, and if you've been keeping tabs, check another item off your list of incidents that can make someone a murderer. Shortly after this, Kehoe returned home. His father and stepmother had given him another sister, Irene. There isn't much we know about Kehoe's personal feelings on being home, except to say that one biographer wrote, quote, Irene had a pet cat and Kehoe killed it. So that's fun. But that would hardly be a blip in the life of Kehoe after 1911. No one knows exactly what happened in the farmhouse he shared with his father and his father's new family. However, we do know it involved his stepmother and their gas stove. Uh, I'm going to be reading from Harold Schechter's book, Maniac, the Bath School Disaster, and the Birth of the Modern Mass Killer. 
When she put a match to the stove, that is, Kehoe's stepmother, it exploded, engulfing her in flames. Hearing the explosion and his stepmother's shrieks, Andrew hurried into the kitchen. He stood and watched her burn for a while, writes Monty Ellsworth, Kehoe's earliest biographer, and then he got a pail of water and threw it over her. The water only caused the burning oil to spread over her body, liquefying what little skin she had left. By then, Philip, now nearly 80, that's his father, and reduced to walking with two canes, had hobbled into the kitchen. Along with nine-year-old Irene, who had raced to the scene, the three of them managed to douse the flames and carry the fire-blackened woman to her bed. Like most of their neighbors, the Kehos had no telephone. The nearest one was at the home of the Murphys, a short distance down the road. As she later recalled, young Hetty Murphy, who had married into the family, was preparing dinner when Andrew appeared at the front door and calmly asked, Would you call Dr. Tuttle? Is someone sick? Hetty asked. No, Andrew replied matter-of-factly. Fanny got burned. Then, almost as an afterthought, he added, Would you call the priest, too? Rumors that Kehoe murdered his stepmother only came about after the bombing of the school. At the time, it was ruled an accident, as there were dozens of gas stove fires across the country just about weekly. But I think it's safe to say that Kehoe didn't exactly help. Now, during all this time, Bath and the surrounding areas had agreed that single-room, small schoolhouses weren't providing the best education for their children. Kids of all ages were stuck in one room, often with just one teacher, who had to teach everything from the alphabet to higher math while trying to keep things interesting for everyone involved. As communities in Michigan grew, it became apparent that this was an awful education model. Something needed to change. Uh, so I'm going to skip ahead a bit, mostly because there's not a lot going in the lives of the going on in the lives of the Bath residents or Kehoe for a long while. He took over the family farm, got married to a woman named Nellie, got involved in local politics, was a general nice guy who liked to help out his neighbors. Except that by 1921, with the Great War over and the Depression off in the distance, Kehoe's farm wasn't doing too well. He wasn't making the money he wanted and paying off his debts was getting a little harder each month. Add to that, a new tax was levied for the new school in town, making Kehoe's per annum and property taxes about one fifty, which today would be like 2300 He complained to one neighbor, quote, It was bad before we built the new schoolhouse. I'm being taxed into the poorhouse. Kehoe ended up running for a place on the board of the school just to start having some say in where his money went, and I can't really fault him for that. He was elected to the board and chosen as treasurer, much to his delight, I'm sure. So, of course, the first thing he did was cut the janitor's salary by $60, and sure, the guy was given a job basically out of charity, but man, did Kehoe just go straight to the opposite of the root of the problem. And then came Emery Hike. I'm not going to go into the life of Hike like Harold Schechter does in his book, uh, suffice to say that everyone seemed to like him. He was ex- he excelled in school, was apparently a great chicken breeder, and taught vocal music at the bath school while, while being its superintendent. He was all for prohibition, though, so he couldn't have been that cool. Uh, so maybe that was what pissed Kehoe off enough to consider him an arch nemesis. I'm not sure even Hike knew why his neighbor in town hated him so very much except that the man had high standards for his school and those standards needed money to be reached. And man, 
did Kehoe fucking hate spending money on education? Like, as treasurer, Kehoe tried to get the man's annual two-week vacation taken away. He begrudgingly gave in to the board's compromise of giving Hike a one-week, quote, restricted vacation. Kehoe often forgot to give Hike his paychecks, and things got to the point that if Hike suggested something on the board, Kehoe objected no matter what it was. This was a feud that Hike hadn't ever agreed to, much less known about. And then Kehoe started gaining more and more power within the board and school. He took over the role of town clerk after the woman in the position died of heart disease. And sometime later, he rid the school of a bee problem, although no one really knows how, and was named the unofficial handyman, which I will remind you now gave him unrestricted access to the school building. In other words, Kehoe was right where he wanted to be, gaining control over the school until he got enough power to really do something about it. But then things took a turn for Kehoe. Put off by his aggressive and overbearing style, he wasn't re-elected to town clerk in April 1926. He, someone who thought very much of himself and his place in society, was knocked down a few pegs. He tried running for justice of the peace that following spring and was, quote, soundly defeated. The blow to his ego was staggering. On top of that, his wife Nellie started to show symptoms of a serious illness, including headaches, weight loss, and violent coughing spells. She was taken to Lansing and admitted to the St. Lawrence Hospital for treatment, leaving Kehoe alone on his farm and with a new, urgent medical debt to pay. By the end of 1926, Kehoe hadn't paid his mortgage in nearly four years. Nellie's aunt happened to be the lender, and so, as it is with family, she let him slide, but when he refused to let some money owed Nellie be used to pay the overdue mortgage, the family decided enough was enough. A foreclosure notice was served to Kehoe. As one account put it, Kehoe said, quote, If it hadn't been for that $300 school tax, I might have paid off the mortgage. Yeah, bud. Whatever you say. On New Year's 1927, at midnight, the town heard a large bang coming from Kehoe's farm. They assumed he was celebrating the new year and didn't really give it too much thought. Kehoe had started collecting pyrotol, leftover explosive material for World War I, now used for farming, like blowing up the odd tree stump or cow, I guess, and had done a little experimenting of his own. He rigged up a bunch of pyrotol to an alarm clock and set it for midnight. His neighbors may not have known about the experiment, but they sure knew when it succeeded. By May 1927, Nellie was in and out of the hospital in Lansing, recovering slowly, and the neighbors had started noticing her husband acting odder than usual. Their farm was increasingly neglected. Kehoe had gone to town to buy a hotshot battery used to start cars of the day in cold weather. He was making weird comments to people he saw on a weekly and daily basis, like to the bus driver he delivered a paycheck to saying it could be the last time they got their check. He was spotted loading crates into the school in the middle of the night, though the woman who spotted him uh, thought he was loading potatoes in because it was the middle of the night, and you have some crazy thoughts when you're woken up in the middle of the night. He told Nellie's sister she had gone to see some friends of the family that Nellie had never mentioned before. Not long before Kehoe was to fetch Nellie from wherever she was, 
He got a call from the first grade teacher of the Bath School asking if they could have their end of year picnic on his property on Thursday, but he suggested they do it Tuesday, May 17th instead. Monty Ellsworth, who wrote one of the first biographies of Kehoe and was his friend and neighbor, said, quote, I suppose he wanted the children to have a little fun before he killed them. All the while, Kehoe continued complaining to friends and neighbors about the damn consolidated school and how much it cost. Wednesday, May 18th, 9.45 a.m., the detonator Andrew Kehoe set went off. In an explosion that could be heard from literal miles away, the Bath Consolidated School Building erupted and then collapsed in on itself. The north side of the building crumbled in a matter of seconds. The roof jolted 10 feet in the air, then came down on the students taking their final exams of the school year, and then on the classrooms below it. The wall of Leona Gutenkut's classroom fell, right where her students would have been had she not gathered everyone around her at the back of the class to read a story. A few of the seniors were out of class, practicing their poems and speeches for graduation the next day. Some weren't due to arrive for class until after 10, but all the lower grades were present for their last day of class ever. Monty Ellsworth said later, quote, A pile of children under the roof. Some of them had arms sticking out, some had legs, and some just their heads sticking out. They were unrecognizable because they were covered in dust, plaster, and blood. Much to their credit, the people of Bath responded immediately. Monty raced to the scene. The homemakers near the school ran to report what they'd heard. The janitor and handyman for the school started hauling away what debris they could. Emery Hike, president at the school on the south side, aided the unharmed children from out the windows of the upper floors and down the sloped roof to safety. Many parents arrived at the school only to find their children dead or dying, and others nearby opened up their homes to the dead and injured, making what would be known as Hospital Hill after the catastrophe. But there was one man decidedly absent from the helpers. Monty Ellsworth saw him driving back from town in his pickup truck, grinning so wide he looked like a corpse. Quote, I could see both rows of his teeth, he would say later. I can see them yet. At the same time that the school exploded, neighbors noticed Kehoe's farm aflame. As in, all of it. The house, the two barns, the hog pen, the corn crib, everything. Oscar Bush and Wesley Campbell, two line workers doing repairs nearby noticed it first and sped over to help they called out to kehoe and his wife but no one answered then they started chucking furniture out the window trying to save everything they could bush spotted dynamite sitting in the corner unexploded without thinking he grabbed it gave it to campbell and he ushered it outside and away from the burning buildings campbell exclaimed quote there's enough dynamite in there to blow up the county after giving up and watching the place burn the line workers and neighbors saw Kehoe's truck drive through the smoke and pass them. He stopped just long enough to say, quote, Boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. What could have been minutes, but felt like hours later, just as men were trying to raise the collapsed roof with a telephone pole, Kehoe drove up to the scene. Emery Hike went to talk to him, and the two men exchanged heated words. And then, 
While no one knows exactly what Kehoe did to trigger it, the entire truck went up in a massive explosion. The blast sent both men and two others flying into the air, and as Rawson put it, the quote, the men went in every direction. The Lansing State Journal reported everything in horrific detail, as was the way of journalism at the time. They used phrases such as virtually shredded and a terrible hunk of blood and bone and hair. Two other men were killed in the explosion, one instantly, and the other after his leg was blown off and he lost too much blood. But those weren't the last of Kehoe's victims. He had filled the bed of his truck with shrapnel, chunks of metal, old farm equipment, nuts and bolts, and it all ripped through the children and the adults trying to get them to safety. The flying shrapnel hit people a block away from the school, including a young immigrant mother who held her infant daughter. The woman survived, thankfully, but had to go through intensive surgery after metal tore out her eye and a piece of her skull. Kehoe really wanted to make a statement. But fortunately for those who made it out alive, and unfortunately for now dead Kehoe, only a fraction of what he had planted under the school had detonated. Some 500 pounds of explosives hadn't gone off. They were discovered and very, very carefully removed by the deputy fire chief, officers, and other helpers. Kehoe had tried to disintegrate the bath school building and everyone in it. The entire community went to work trying to save the children and teachers. Two hospitals in Lansing filled up in, with minutes of the children's arrival, and children were lined up in corridors and assessed for severity of injuries. Men and women dug through the rubble of the school, managed to finally get the roof off, and continued pulling children from the wreckage and getting them to triage on a knoll of the property, Hospital Hill. The governor and his wife showed up and got to work lifting and helping the nurses make bandages. Some of the doctors assisting children that morning likened the, the scene to their time in World War I. And amidst all of that were the constant cries and wails from parents who were saying goodbye to their children for the last time. All told, Kehoe killed 43 adults and children, including himself. The papers and reporters picked up the story instantly. By the time the morning news went out the next day, people from New York to Los Angeles knew what had happened in Bath, Michigan. And then came the looky-loos. Hundreds of morbidly curious folks came from everywhere just to see the horror. The careless and insensitive gawkers blocked roadways, entrances to the makeshift morgue in the town hall, and watched mothers grieve over the bodies of their slain children. According to Schechter in his book Maniac, Quote, hundreds gathered like flies about the shattered remnants of what had been Andrew Kehoe. However, out of this, we got the new phrase dynamiting orgy. So that's fun. Now, you might be asking yourself what happened to Kehoe's wife, Nellie. She'd been in and out of the hospital in Lansing, discharged into Kehoe's care the Monday before the bombing, and apparently gone off to see family friends that week. Well... Authorities found her, or what remained of her, the next day. Deputy Sheriff Roy Cole discovered her remains after the fires on the Kehoe farm were put out and everything cooled. The body was blackened to char and could only be identified by the items resting around it, 
a lady's watch, the family silverware, a few rings, a marriage license, and hospital bills, all in a black lacquered box. The back of Nellie's skull had been crushed. Her clothing had been doused with kerosene. She'd been tied to a two-wheeled hog cart and rolled around the side of one of the outbuildings of the farm. Kehoe's entire farm was burnt to the ground, including his two horses who had been tied with wire to their stable so they couldn't run from the flames. And to top it all off, painted on a piece of wood at one edge of the property were the words, Criminals are made, not born. What a fucking asshole. Earlier, a box that had been used for Pyrotol had been sent by Kehoe to insurance agent Clyde B. Smith. Not knowing if it, too, was a bomb, it was tracked down by the sheriff and taken back to the barracks for inspection. It is really this box that's the reason as to why we know so much about the kind of crazy Kehoe was. In it was everything, and I mean literally every document, unsigned check, and deposit book that Kehoe had touched during his time as school board treasurer. With it was a letter that accounted for everything in the box, including the explanation of why there was a, quote, 23-cent discrepancy between his own bookkeeping and the bank records. The IRS doesn't keep records as thoroughly as Kehoe did. But, as Schechter points out, the most subtly twisted thing in the box was one sentence Kehoe wrote, quote, I am leaving the school board and turning over to you all my accounts. Wow. In the aftermath, it was decided by the pastors, reverends, priests, and parents of the community that a mass funeral and grave wasn't going to be the most beneficial for the grieving. There is no single plot or cemetery to visit to pay respects to the killed children and adults, and that's okay. Each family got to say goodbye to their loved one in a much smaller, more intimate setting. That includes Nellie's family. She was buried in Lansing's Mount Hope Cemetery under her maiden name and attended to by her entire family. Kehoe was thrown in a pine box, attended to by no one, and buried in an unmarked grave in a cemetery in St. John's and we'll leave him there to rot. Not a lot of people know of this tragic event, at least not these days. Less than a week after this story hit papers, Charles Lindbergh made his historic flight across the Atlantic. As soon as he landed in Paris, the horrors in Bath, Michigan, disappeared from the news and from people's thoughts. As is the case with most giant incidents, we're only paying attention until something new and novel comes along. But I think this is an incredibly important event to remember, and I'm really glad I took the time to read and write about it. Schechter continues the story in his book, which I highly recommend if you'd like to know more about Kehoe's mind, the inquest after the disaster that determined that he was indeed sane and the sole responsible party for all of the murder, and how he contributed to our notion of the modern killer. Um, I'm not going to go into all of it because I don't think the time is right. I'd rather leave the story as it is and reflect on the lives that were lost that day and how a hundred years later, times haven't changed at all. But man, that was heavy. Let's all go get some ice cream or cookies, settle down on the couch and just veg a little while. And I will see you next time. <laughs>